0: Welcome to Know Your Options, the measured risk podcast,
1: the ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully.
0: Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back,
1: and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together.
0: Welcome to the Know Your Options, the Measured Risk podcast. I'm your host, Larry Kriesmer, my partner, Bernard Swarovski. And we have here today uh, distinguished guest, R.J. Kelly. Uh, He's the founder and chief visionary officer of the Wealth Legacy Group. Uh, He's he's accomplished tremendous things, and we're very pleased to welcome him to the show today.
2: Well, you're you're very, very kind. I am honored to be included with you here. We've already been having some fun before we're going live. And so I know we're going to have a great time together today as well.
0: Great, great. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about? You know, you mentioned in the in the sort of green room that you've been in this industry for a number of years. Uh, Thirty five, I think you mentioned.
2: Yeah, I uh, don't just, tell him the real number because otherwise, they're going to think that I have to come up in a wheelchair. So yes,
1: exactly. Well, well but in oh, fairness, oh, RJ, did, uh, RJ didn't give us a number, Larry. You just put
0: that number in there, so we're just going to go with for a yeah. couple of years. Yeah. Well, I was going to I was going to comment that that's a pretty good start because I think I've <laughs> actually got a few more years than that or or, or close. Yeah. So uh, tell us about how you became the uh, founder of the firm that you are representing today.
2: Well, as everything is a progressive revelation, right? So there's this continuum where we start over on the left hand side and then we wander our way over as long as we keep at it uh, along that compendium. And so that certainly happened for me. I started in the life insurance business up in Spokane, Washington in 1977. Uh, and it morphed from there. My father died when I was 18, my first month at Washington State, um, WSU. And so it was with the decision, do I go back into the family business, which was the oil business in central Washington, or do I stay in at university? And fortunately, my parents, my mother had actually sat me down the year before and said, honey, we'd love for you to come back into the family business if you want, but understand that we've, we'll support you whatever you decide to do. And honestly, I'm not sure the business is big enough to challenge you. And I I so appreciated that because who knew that my father would be dead less than a year later after that conversation. And I would have gone back into the family business just out of a sense of obligation and honor to my family, just as my father had done when his father died his first year at university and he left university and never went back. So those conversations, as a side note, those conversations we have with our kids, even though they may be five minutes long, we just never know where there's where those conversations are gonna go and land. So I stayed at, at Washington State and but I, I was really moved by watching what happened to my father's business that would eventually this multi, multi-million dollar company was bankrupt in 10 years following his death because the various disciplines, the planning disciplines were siloed from one another. So the investment people weren't talking with the insurance people, weren't talking with the attorney, weren't talking with the CPA. And as my father's business, which was down here, the management team, fine. But when the business grew to these levels with the same management team in place, it was no longer fine. So For me, I wanted to build a firm that could address the various planning issues, whether it's growth and assets, whether it's legacy, whether it's philanthropy, and be able to be just as articulate in those areas whether or not I got paid for it as the professionals that we would bring in to actually draft the documents or put together the buy-sell agreements or create the dynasty trust domiciled in Nevada or South Dakota or they put the insurance products in place and so forth and so on. So that's really kind of the evolution of practice. Now we're a consulting firm with 21 clients in 21 states. Um, it looks like we're being hired by a wealthy family in Georgia after a conversation this morning. So that'll make 22 states. <laughs> and just keep going, having fun and making a difference in the lives of other people uh, around us. And uh, love what I get to do and feel honored and privileged to get to do it.
1: So, RJ, tell me a little bit about, you know, when we look, through, you know, when one looks at your name, you kind of got an alphabet of letters behind your name, which is quite an achievement in and of itself. Um, can you talk a little bit about those different designations and which one of those you think has been most helpful to you or to you and, your, and, and the growth in the business, or if there are kind of any number of them, how, you know, which one stands out the most in your mind?
2: Great, great question. It's like when I chat with friends who have been around the world and are are world travelers like myself. Say, okay, which what were your three favorites? Yeah. Uh, Or I'm a I'm an H I marathoner, so it was like talking. Okay, well, which which were your favorite marathons that you did, and why? Um, so as far as credentials go, I can lean into a, uh, several of them. The Charter Financial Consultant designation is great because it really looks at disparate aspects of planning from a multiplicity of different directions. Point being is that you know, we're we're not I'm, I'm not an attorney, but I read through and have read through hundreds of documents up until just recently. We've had an in-house attorney. We don't draft documents, but we're reviewing things all the time. Um, you know, no criticism intended for those listening audience that are themselves attorneys, but they really want to just get folks in and out as quickly as possible. They don't take the time to talk with them about, you know, what's a trust protector? This morning, here's a very sophisticated woman with, sounds like a very sophisticated attorney, but when, when we started looking at the drafts of documents that she has, no mention of anything at all called a trust attorney, sorry, trust trust protector. What does that do? Well, that's when I learned how an irrevocable trust is changeable. We can actually take a trust that's supposedly not be able to be changed and make it changeable. How do we do that? Put a trust protector in there. So that charter financial consultant designation, the CHFC, has been a great door opener for that. But also my accredited estate planning designation designates the fact that I know what I'm doing in the estate planning field. My MSFS, my Master of Science in Financial Services with a subspecialization in taxation, I think that probably is a single designation has done the most for me because the world revolves around tax, tax mitigation. So we get paid right now. I'm in the midst of finishing a $43 million sale of a farm in New Jersey. Where
1: <laughs> it's in, still farms there, yeah. Those farms in New
2: Jersey, as, as my buddy, he said, RJ, uh, we are called the garden state for a reason, <laughs> said, yeah. Okay. But we're selling a $43 million farm using a special exemption in the IRS tax code put there in 1988 for those in the ag industry where we can sell the asset and defer the recognition of the tax for 30 years. And at the same time, give 94% of the net sales proceeds to that farmer within 7 to 10 business days. We can also do the same thing with production. We can take the and, and a great case for this is Boise Cascade is a pretty well known company that, that up in Pacific Northwest where I'm from. They then sold their part of Office Depot, Office Max, the office supply company. But they had a sale of 1.6 billion dollars of timberland back in 2005. They deferred the recognition of that tax. Well, I'll ask it this way. How much tax did they pay in 2005 when they sold that $1.6 billion worth of timber? And I'm giving you the answer. Yeah, that's right. I'm guessing uh, 0.0. And I'm in the right place. So zero, and they chose to not pay it for 15 years. Well, if you have $1.6 billion with no tax implications, you can do a lot of good things to grow the value of that $1.6 billion. Well, in reality, there are no years stated in this subsection, but we go with 30, just because that's a reasonably long period of time, even though Congress, in fact, did not put a a, a period of time in there. So we can do this for both um, the sale of farmland, or we can do also with the production that's coming from farm, in this case, timber. What about cattle ranchers? Yep. Anything that um, has a date and an activity where there's a liquidity event. We looked at one of my dear friends who's a horse rancher and he gets steady income every month, but it didn't apply to him because really he's in the housing business. He just happens to be in four-footed animal housing. So there's no liquidity event that we could do for him unless he sold a whole bunch of horses at one time, in which case, as long as it's $250,000 or more, we can defer the recognition of the profit, the tax from that for 30 years, which, especially for those in the farming business, they don't want to sell land. It's like the farmer who said, you know, I I don't want all the land that's in the world. I I just want the land that's next to mine. So yeah, what point. we do is by selling, by giving him money ninety four percent ninety four cents on the dollar of net sales proceeds from that production. What are they going to do with the money? Normally, farmers take that money and they go and they just buy something. You know, a five million dollar combine. Do they need it? No, but they hate paying taxes. There's no group of people I've never I've, I've ever seen or met that hates paying taxes more than those in the ag business. But what we can do is we can give them cash in their pocket that they can take out and go do whatever they want to. And guess what they'll do? Probably go buy some farm land that's next to theirs. So it's a fascinating subsection of what we get to do. So that tax mitigation from my tax subspecialization of my master's, probably the single one that's been the most useful, but then also my wealth management certified professional designation and being an independent registered investment advisor. That's helped me a lot because 60% of our revenue comes from assets under management that we do have a very special platform uh, that we provide that has downside protection, but at the same time upside growth potential by investing in all 11 sectors of the U.S. economy, not individual stocks or bonds, but in fact, across all 11 sectors. So we have that downside protection with a built in stop loss. At the same time, we can go fully out when things are good (laughs) and, and be invested across 11 sectors at extremely low cost. So those are the first things that come to mind right offhand. Yeah. That's really cool. So tell me about
0: you've got this. Um, it's trademarked process, the critical actions roadmap. Dis- discuss what that looks like if you're a client coming in or being onboarded or put through that process.
2: Sure. So we we have different levels in which we can be engaged. Um, there was a you know, time in my career, certainly when I started in the life insurance business way back when, when the earth's crust was cooling, where we didn't charge fees. We just got paid commissions. But I quickly realized that there would be situations where I've done a lot of work, a lot of tax planning and didn't get anything because I didn't we didn't place the insurance for whatever reason. So fairly quickly on, I learned that I needed to charge for my time. And now- you know, I'm at am at 5.95 an hour, or they can just hire me for a flat monthly, sorry, flat uh, rate for a degree of services. So we have just an initial observations assessment for the people that want to kick the tires. So that's about four or five grand um, where we take a look at things. We'll give them up to eight hours worth of discussion time. But most commonly, people hire us to do a critical actions roadmap, which is where we look at the, what I call the four legs of the table. That's their estate planning. That's their insurance, their investments, and their legacy planning. How much do they want to leave to the kids? Gen two, gen three. That's the four legs of the table. The table top is, the, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. The income planning is the fourth leg of the table. Because again, my retirement income certified professional designation training has has really brought me into a place where I realize how unprepared for retirement, sadly, most Americans are, but it doesn't stop there. Canadians, other parts of the world as well are, are equally unprepared, it seems. So the four legs are the estate plan, the insurance, the investments, and the fourth leg is income planning. How much do you need now? How much will we need five years from now, 10 years from now, and so forth? And then generationally, we may also look at income planning as well those are the four legs of the table. On top of that is the legacy. How much do you want to give to the next generation? I look at it as a pyramid. The first level is how much income do you need for you, Gen 1, the progenitors the creators of the wealth? We can determine that. We can figure that out. And we usually give a big margin of error. It's what you do as well. You help them determine how much income and let's face it. A lot of the wealthier families have more than they can spend in three generations. I mean, just you know, they can't spend it all. So at least the second layer, which is then Gen Two, how much do you want to give to kids, nieces, nephews, grandchildren? We can determine that as well, precisely. And then that third amount of assets, though, is the unnecessary wealth. That's the wealth again. It's more than they could ever spend in in three lifetimes. So that's usually an amount that once we've demonstrated the first two layers, those are assets that then they may want to consider having as going for um, uh, philanthropy. And so that tabletop is what do we want to leave for legacy and what do we want to leave for philanthropy? And then tax is what is the boundary that holds everything together. (laughs) So a critical action roadmap looks at those four legs of the table, estate, income, insurance, investments, the tabletop, the legacy, philanthropy, and tax mitigation. And that's what we build on. But then what about the business? And what about maybe there's a chunk of real estate, an apartment building, a shopping center, something else that's in play? What do we do about that? So that's the difference between either a core or a comprehensive critical actions roadmap. The comprehensive deals with the sale of the shopping center or it deals with the sale of the business. And how do we mitigate the taxes on that transaction? And there are a number of uh, real estate, most people are familiar with a 1031 exchange. Okay. I've never seen a worse time to try and do a 1031 exchange than now because stuff, we, we have six weeks to identify replacement property. Well, what happens if it isn't there well, by the time we have to execute, which has been happening a lot? Um, or there's another reason why that piece that's still available to trade into or to sell into, there's a reason why that's still around. It's the, of the cup of the litter. You know, nobody wants that thing. So how can we instead use some alternatives to not having, let's create a timing mechanism where we can recognize the tax when we want to. And there are some strategies for us to be able to do that. So again, it's, the critical actions roadmap is really identifying what are the issues that are most pressing for that family. And then 84% statistically are, are happy to just simply know what time is it. Now, the 16% want to not, not only know what time it is, but they want to know how that watch works. You know, But that's only 16%. 84% just say, tell me what time it is. So that's where we unpack What's in their hearts? What are they trying to accomplish? What would let them sleep better at night? And then we just put the strategies in place. Most of the time, they've never heard it before, but work in conjunction with their team. And because I'm being hired, the attorneys and the CPAs, you know, I'm on the same side of the table with them now. I'm not an adversary. I'm not a threat. Yeah. To them. I'm there as a colleague. I just happen to have other disciplines that we're representing than what they do. But, you know, again, we I'm perfectly happy to sit and be on the bus and let somebody else drive the bus. But more commonly than not, I'm the guy that's actually steering the bus, too, because I'm comprehensive. Our firm is comprehensive. We understand just about as much or oftentimes more than the attorney, of the CPA does in their own unique niche. So we all need each other. Nobody is as smart as all of us.
0: Yes. You
2: know, nobody's got a corner on all the good ideas. I don't yep. You, even as smart as you guys are? Not even
1: No, we have more. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you, you, you were mentioning about, you know, keep sleeping at night. And uh, are there any risks that keep you up at night With uh, or potential hazards that you see to your clients' philanthropic efforts? And if so, you know, what are you trying to do to mitigate those risks?
2: Sure. Well, primarily our clients are our entrepreneurs. They're the ones that have... have the progenitors or the makers of that of the wealth. We do work with some family offices. We do work with some second and third generational wealth, but most of our clients are successful first generational wealth builders. So for that reason, they are risk takers as well. Um, That second generation or third generation we know statistically that roughly 9% of the third generation will still have the wealth left. I don't recall whether it was Rockefeller or Carnegie, but I believe it was they they made the same statement that there is no inheritance so great as it cannot be fully spent. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Um we know statistically that That um, by the third generation, that wealth lasts in the United States roughly 3.1 generations from the time the wealth is made till the time the wealth is completely gone. We know that if we leave a lump sum to children or grandchildren, we know statistically that five and a half years is the average length of time before the money is all gone. So it's why we we don't like to talk about leaving money to kids in lump sums. Certainly, um, if they want to use a waterfall, where they have a third of the assets at 35, half of the balance at 40, and the balance 45, okay, fine. But it's like a wealthy um, developer that I was hired by a number of years ago, and he had he, he was brilliant. He is brilliant. He has three kids, none of them who are in his his lighthouse at all. I mean, he's just he's just way off the reservation. He's so smart. And his kids are nice kids, 30, 28, and 27 at the time. And he had put trusts together for each one of them. They were worth $25 million each in their trusts at that time. We were projecting that by the time the trusts triggered, because uh, the attorney, a brilliant attorney, I, I've worked with him before, and, and he's a terrific guy. But he had set up a waterfall system for these trust amounts. So at 40, a third of the assets were, were going to come out, half of the balance at 45 and the balance at 50. Well, we were projecting somewhere between 75 to 100 million that was going to be in their trust by the time they reached the age of 40. Now, when you have assets that are in trust, three great things happen. Number one, especially in a trust that you didn't create for yourself, they were cre- the trust that was created for you by your parents or grandparents. So first thing is, number one, it's outside the reach of creditors. So God forbid, if one of your kids is driving home late at night because they've been working, 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 and they fall asleep at the wheel and cross the center line and run smack into a a pregnant mother with her two-year-old daughter and kill them all, will there be a lawsuit? And we know. So if you've already released assets, if if you've taken assets out of that trust, those are all going to be subject to creditors. And then that lawsuit, but if those assets are still in trust for the benefit of your children, grandchildren, whatever, it's not subject to that lawsuit. As the saying goes, usually control is better than ownership. Control is better than ownership. So first thing is, why don't we keep the assets in trust and keep it outside the reach of unexpected creditors? Second one, I don't know about where your world is, but my world here says that people get divorced. Unfortunately, I wish it didn't happen. It never happens in
1: California. In fact, uh, there's a a zero divorce rate in California, right?
2: Well, it's it's about 100%, (laughs) it seems like, but it's not quite that bad. Um, But I've been experiencing an unexpected divorce. I mean, no one really looks for that, but it does happen. And it happens to our kids as well. Thankfully, knock on wood, we've got two amazing daughters-in-law, and please, God, it won't happen to us. But if you have assets that stay in trust for the benefit of your kids or grandkids, It's not going to be subject to a divorce. But unfortunately, attorneys, and again, I don't mean any, um, I'm not trying to step on the feet of attorneys because we get a lot of business from attorneys. But I was in a conversation with an attorney just last week for a family in Massachusetts that we're just starting to work with, $60 plus net worth. And the attorney is trying to create a prenuptial agreement for this family's daughter who's getting married later this year. And I advise against it. And and they said, well, why? Why are you pushing back on that? And I said, well, let me give you a reason. Number one every prenup I've ever seen signed, they always end up divorced because. You're setting this, you're creating the, the, you're planting the seeds of doubt. So here's the story. You've got a son and your, and your daughter. And so you've got your son-in-law and your daughter says to your son-in-law, soon to be son-in-law, you know what? I love you. We'll be married forever. But just in case I'm going to keep these assets at a separate trust. Now, which part of that conversation is your son-in-law going to remember the first part or the second part? <laughs> They always remember the second part. Some of the most brutal conversations I've ever seen the aftermath from have been between a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And they're ugly. They're nasty. So let's circumvent that from even happening. And how do we do that? The the inheritance is going to be there for our sons or daughters. It remains in trust for their benefit. There's no waterfall effect. So, number one, it keeps it out of the reach of creditors. Number two, it keeps it out of divorce court. And number three, it keeps it away from IRS or any state, you know, like in California, where, unfortunately, we have third generation, uh, three decades of one party dominating the rule here. You know, mention any parties, but it's spelled Democrats. And they have ruined the state thus far by all their, their rapaciousness for taxation. So, we can keep that money, though, out of the reach of The state, yes, they have to pay taxes on the income generated, but the assets themselves are not subject to any kind of inheritance tax or whether there's a number of states, California right now does not have an inheritance tax, but it gets regularly every year, it seems now, gets brought back up as, oh, let's do this and on anything that's above 3 or $4 million of assets, let's tax them. So keeping those assets outside of the radar screen of either the federal and the state government is a good thing for most people. So three things, keep the assets in trust for the benefit of your generation. Here in California, a trust can last for 80 to 100 years. And in most states, 37 states in the United States have laws in place that prevent ongoing trust with indefinite periods. But that still leaves 13 that have either completely repealed their laws against perpetuities or have ultra long periods of time. Wyoming is a thousand years. We can create a trust in Wyoming for a thousand. Nevada and South Dakota, Nevada is 365 years, which, you know, that's not forever, but I'm told that's a pretty long time. Yeah, (laughs) Um, You know, it's indefinite. Alaska's indefinite. Denver or Delaware's indefinite.
0: So it's interesting point, though, if you think about building a trust, uh, a legacy trust or a dynasty trust like that, I've kind of. Always thought that's okay. Makes perfect sense for you know second, third, maybe even fourth generation. But with any kind of um, let's say reproduction skills, this legacy starts to become um, just a whole lot of bodies down line. Yeah. And have you you discussed that and all with like what that looks like? I mean, mm-hmm. how, what it, is there like a real practical end in mind? Because I know you end up with you know. Two kids have have five kids, have nine grandchildren, have 27, you know, son-in-laws. And the next thing you know, you've got a beneficiary pool that's 175 people deep, just to the magic of compounding.
2: Right. Did somebody uh, call the school over here? Oh, no, 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 Those are all our family. Yeah, okay. That's right. thinking, <laughs> one, and uh, one time we was in Hawaii, and they're this family really tight. Sure. So it's like, oh, my gosh, we got half the city here. You're all cousins? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what you do is you, you can put... Uh, a ripcord into it, what you do is you allow for each trust beneficiary the right to be able to pull the ripcord and terminate their trust, but only upon their death. See, if you put the language that gives them the right to terminate the trust while they're alive, now you've created a situation where you no longer have creditor protection. Mm-hmm. Because the creditors can force the person to then terminate the trust and release the assets so the creditors can go after it. So what you do is you just simply put it, the ripcord, and then it says, okay, trust gone, but not until I die. So that is not considered a general power. It's a specific power. So it doesn't create a loss of creditor protection. Interesting. But it does allow for that situation where you've got cramities. We got, you know, the, the trust is still worth generally about ten million, and we got fifty-seven thousand beneficiaries. Let's yeah. pull the cord on some of these things.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Otherwise, it's a dollar eighty per per beneficiary per year, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I and mean, yeah. the admin costs start to get something serious. But, yeah. but it seems like you've got, um, you know, the, the entrepreneurs and the so the risk takers on the front end of this business model. <laughs> And obviously, philanthropy is a is a big impact, or you're attempting to make a big impact. Talk about your goals there, with with what you'd like to accomplish.
2: You're so kind, Larry, to ask. Thank you. Um, so, my life expectancy, my my goal is 147. I want to see a new century come in. So, you know, okay. that's my life goal it's is ambitious. 147. And uh, hence, I'm a runner. I work out four to five times a week. And, you know, they say the real key to longevity is three things number one, diet. Number two, exercise. And number three, choosing your parents very carefully. <laughs> yeah. I, I was fortunate in all three. But kidding aside, when you have a long-term perspective about how things go, it does kind of change how you sort of get out of bed in the morning. But what does get me out of the bed in the morning is my my goal to facilitate a billion dollars for philanthropy. We crossed 100 million in August of 2012. We're well on our way for our second 100 million. And a lot of that comes from converting what I call the involuntary philanthropy, also known as... Estate tax. <laughs> estate income, capital gains tax. Um, how can we convert that involuntary philanthropy into voluntary? And, mm-hmm. and what do I mean by that? Most wealthy affluent Americans understand that that we have an obligation to support the social well-being of the country. I mean, for, for all its faults, it's still and I've, I've had the privilege of being around to many, many countries in the world. But for all its faults, America is still the country I I want to live in. It's an amazing country. My wife's a survivor of the killing fields of Cambodia. She lived for you know, four, three and a half years under the communists. And so she knows what it's like to live under the communists. And fortunately, amazingly, she survived the war as a prisoner of war and, and was able to escape to the United States. But. Point being is that most wealthy, affluent Americans understand we have that obligation to support the social wealthy, but they don't understand the government gives us a choice in how we do that. That is, if we don't choose in advance, they will choose for us. And what's that called? <laughs> it's called the income tax. It's called the state tax, gift tax, capital gains tax, so forth. But what, what, again, what most wealthy affluent Americans don't understand because their advisors don't tell them, and I'm sad to say, I think it's because a lot of advisors themselves don't know, or if they do know, they don't know well enough to be able to articulate the planning. And they, frankly, many times don't do it themselves. Again, if you would be convincing, you got to be convinced. There's a Negro spiritual that basically says that. Same thing. I make recommendations of, of tools, techniques, and strategies for my clients that I use for myself. And so point being is that there are a number of ways in which we can anticipatory redirect that involuntary philanthropy. So capital gains taxes are optional. We don't have to pay them and we won't go to jail if we do something else. If we support the social well-being in the country in a way that's in alignment with our own value system, we estate taxes are optional. They're voluntary. We don't have to pay them. And we won't go to jail if, again, we decide how we want to support the social well-being of the country in a way that's in alignment with our own value system. And about a third to half of income taxes similarly can be eliminated. A conversation I had earlier today with this woman, I can create for her that fast Something that will give her $210,000 a year of income tax deductions simply by moving $2.5 million of stocks and bonds into a special philanthropic bucket that is irrevocable. It's also protected against tax, so any money she doesn't take out, there's no tax on it until she actually takes it out of the bucket. But at her age of 75... She's going to create enough tax deductions, just simply with that quarter, two, two and a half million dollars, that'll give her $210,000 of tax deductions for the next six years. That's one hundred roughly $110,000 a year of tax, of more cash in her pocket that she can have to spend simply because we created tax deductions out of something she's going to do in the future anyway. She Another example, this sweet couple, they sold their $7.5 million business and property And his wife said, we're not doing another 1031 exchange. 1035 exchanges are for insurance and annuities. We're going to do a 1031 exchange on the real estate. So $7.5 million sale, guess how much taxes they created? $2.1 million were the taxes. Now, fortunately, they found me, we found them in the same tax year. So in probing, because they wanted me to, to, to come in and advise them about the $6 million in cash they had to invest. But in the course of just um, discovering what their pot buttons were and what their goals and directions were for the rest of their lives, they're very philanthropic people. Unfortunately, we lost him earlier this year. I'll call him Tom. That's not his real name. We lost Tom earlier this year, just a beautiful human being. Fortunately, we still have his lovely, wonderful wife who's amazing. Um, she grows pot with her grandson. This is California, after all, by the way. And so we never quite know when uh, Shirley, that's not her real name, we, Shirley, just that's her natural effervescent uh, personality or maybe she's had a little bit too much to toke before she called me. But anyway,
1: <laughs> uh,
2: they had a seven and a half million dollar sale, two and two point one million dollar taxes. So I couldn't do anything after the to eliminate the 2.1 million. But what we did is we created two different philanthropic techniques to overlay in their situation. We created $3 million worth of tax deductions, of which we used all of that up to wash away some of the tax. So we didn't eliminate the tax, but we took it from from 2.1 million down to 927,000, which... I'm a country boy from Yakima, Washington. That's a lot of money where I come from. But they were thrilled with the fact that we'd saved them, you know, a million three of taxes. So that's involuntary philanthropy. And these are a couple that just, they love Salvation Army, Goodwill, and an animal rescue organization. So we're able to recover back some of that money to be able to use, not only to give her income for the rest of her life, but also be able to have of even bigger gifts to the Salvation Army Goodwill and, and this animal rescue organization. But had we met each other prior to the sale, their tax on that sale would have been zero. We could have put the same structure in place for them we used after this private philanthropic trust that we created. We could have done that ahead of time and had zero tax to pay and yet still created $3 million for the tax deductions. And I'm sorry. The $3 million came from two different... We would have gotten 1634000 off of this one idea, so roughly $0.81 cents on the dollar. We put $2 million in this philanthropic trust. Had we sold that entire entity, we could have completely eliminated the tax on the sale because this is a very philanthropic family, and, and IRS and, frankly, Congress wants us to be helping to build our country so if and and they recognize the fact that we as private donors are uh, can be a hundred percent efficient as compared with giving to the government, and depending on which survey you believe it's either seventy five cents or eighty one cents on the dollar is disappears in bureaucracy in the in the machine in the machinery. So we get out in terms of actual philanthropy benefits, 19 cents to 25 cents for every dollar that we send back. Well, that's pretty bad return. And not only that, we have no, um, they're not going to name a missile system after you or a post office after you. you know? no. They don't even send you a thank you note for the taxes. So no. I love what I get to do from that standpoint, being able to help uh, folks redirect that involuntary philanthropy, I'm not very good at turning a a zero giver into a giver. That just doesn't happen very often. I've gotten a few, but not very many. But what I've been very successful at is turning a little giver into a bigger giver because people are very generous with money when they know it's not theirs to keep anyway. In this case with this family, we just put money that they were going to give away anyway. Their house um, is about $1.8 million in a lovely part of San Diego. So that was their intention is when they die, they want their house to go to those three different charities. I said, you're sure about that? You don't, you're not going to sell it. You're not going to, we said, well, we might sell, but we still, whatever that money is, we want to give that to those three organizations. You're sure? Absolutely. Okay. So what we did is we signed a special document that just says at their death, that property is going to be sold and the proceeds given to those three charities. Simply by doing that, gentlemen, that created for them a $1,337,000 income tax deduction that we have six years to use it up. Well, because we had that huge sale up front of $7.5 and, and the huge tax bill, we used it all up that first year. But that created the million three. We got almost a million seven off of the other tool. So that's where the $3 million came from. So that, that's just some examples of different tools. Um, yeah, that's great. host of different ones, but every situation is different. Everyone's unique. There's no cookie cutter solutions to this, but that's because we're multidisciplinary. We can look at these different opportunities and again, get to know them so we can tell them what time it is. And 84% of the people, that's all they want. But the other sixteen percent were ready to deal with the, you know, the engineers and the others who really want to know how yeah. works. Do. We got that ready and got that covered.
0: Well, before we wrap up the conversation today, looking ahead as you look out over the financial landscape, do you see any trends or changes? Or are you are you thinking about making any adaptations? Any sort of artificial intelligence now is the big buzz. Anything uh, on your on your thought or your plate there? That you want to chat about before we wrap up?
2: Well, I, I love technology, especially I love technology when it works. <laughs> Get really frustrated, when I want to throw my laptop out the window or my cells and the other technology. Um, I love AI because it can it, it can make things um, more predictive, but it's just like the robo advisor um, concern that was happening a few years ago, and would robo advisors take the the place of Advisors like you and me. And while there was some consternation about that, very quickly it became apparent that you can't replace that, at least at the lower end. Okay, robo advisors, that makes great sense. We, you and I simply can't provide our services at that level to the, the vast majority of people. All we can do is we can do our podcasts. We can do, I've got a book coming out uh, on retirement planning. Top 10 planning mistakes that will keep you from retiring well. Um, how to design your ideal retirement starting today. Because, again, most Americans are simply not going to be able to retire. It's kind of scary, actually. And here in this this amazingly wealthy country that we have, most will not be able to ever step back. And 41% of Americans ended up retiring sooner than they planned on because either their health changed or the someone that they loved, their health changed or their, the health of their company and their job changed. So most people think, well, I'll just keep working and putting money away. And they can't do it because something comes up they weren't planning on. And there's a host of other reasons that affect us. So AI is great. It will help, especially for those that don't have the funds to hire professionals like you and me. But I'm not concerned about AI. We're using AI already in terms of some of our documentation writing, and and we do our own monthly newsletters. It's amazing what you could. Hey, chat GBT, what about this? You know, <laughs> there are limitations there because of the cutoff. That, that, you know, that'll only report up to a certain period of time. But what I'm what I'm looking at for professionals today is I want for young men and women that are are now coming. To either go and get their their masters in financial planning, to start doing internships. We're, we just interviewed a delightful young man. He just he's graduating a, a semester early from the University of Houston, moving to San Diego. He's going to get his masters over at San Diego State in financial planning. For, for whatever reason, he he found us and, and decided he want to interview with us. I'm sure a, a bunch of others we're, were probably the the one just to kind of get his feet wet. But we've we've really had, he's just a delightful young man. So in fact, he just called me earlier today and said, Hey, when can we have another follow-up call? And can I, can we get in the cycle together? I'm excited about that because it said that a, a professional will be considered a profession when those who engage in that occupation act as professionals. And for the financial services industry, I'm not sure that we could say that it's a professional occupation yet. Because the vast majority, let's face it, there's a there's a tremendous opportunity to, to make a boatload of money, and unfortunately, that's true with with medicine and, and other things as well. It, it attracts good and bad kind of people. We've got people that really want to serve and they'll get paid for that, because we know that that income is just simply applause for a job well done, but there's also people who get attracted to simply that are looking out for themselves and they want to make as much money as they can. And, and regrettably, that's why we have so many, so many of the really archaic and kind of idiotic laws in place in the securities business, because there've been some really bad actors that have just a few small number, but a few that have really made it hell. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, and Oh my gosh. So we'll, that will save the rest of that conversation, but, that's why we need to attract people into our business and train them as professionals, and so that they understand that we're here to serve. We're here, we're here to serve, and if we serve at a level that uh, we get we solve really complicated and challenging issues, well, we deserve to get paid well for that. But we don't deserve to get paid unless we're in fact bringing solutions that will make a difference in a lasting, positive way in the lives of those we serve. So, amen. 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 I see it going forward, gentlemen. I, I know you're professionals of what you do. That's why you're, we're having this conversation today. And I'm so honored to be with you. And I know I've meandered a few different times on different directions, but I hope you, your listeners will find some value in our conversation today. And again, I'm, I'm so honored to be included on your program.
0: Thanks so much, Arthur. It was you. great to meet you and great to learn more about your, your process. And hope to see you again, maybe in person at some point.
2: I would love that. That would be tough. Thank you. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the
0: incentive to give an endorsement in the interests of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP.